Blog Talk Radio. us again today. As those of you who listen with any regularity know that we focus on subjects of health and wellness and healing and nutrition for the body and today we'll be speaking specifically about nutrition for the brain. We'll be speaking with Rick Hansen, neuropsychologist, author of his latest book, Hardwiring Happiness, the New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. Rick is also the author of several other books, including Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nature. He is the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom and an affiliate of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. He's been an invited speaker at Oxford, Stanford, and Harvard. He has several audio programs as well and a popular free newsletter, Just One Thing. It's a real pleasure for me to have Rick on A Better World today to talk about this most important matter, actually, as we look at a world that is completely fraught with distress, with stress, excess stress, and uh, a bent toward negativity, but understanding some aspects of the uh, operation of the brain will help to elucidate this matter and give us leverage to change it, both on an individual level, a couple's family level, and I dare say even national and international levels. So, Rick Hansen, thanks so much for being on the show today. Mitchell, it's a great pleasure, and I hope you'll forgive my voice. I, I have a sore throat, and uh, I've been teaching a lot, so I've got this sort of deep husky thing going here, but anyway, hopefully it can be understood. That's fine. Sorry to hear about that. We'll have to talk about how to change your brain to affect your cellular activity in your throat. <laughs> sure. <definitely. laughs> but it's I'll not agree. a problem. I'm sorry you're not feeling up, but uh, I'm glad you're joining us even under such circumstances. You know, that oh, actually yeah, brings up yeah, good. It uh, We'll have a lot to talk about because I've been involved in holistic uh, practices and as a psychotherapist for many, many years, and I, I just adore the domain of what's been this burgeoning field of neuroscience, and it's just completely inspired so many of us, obviously you as well. So uh, what you're writing about here, Rick, I think can 
helped to help us evolve, really, as a species, since you're really mm-hmm. looking at some of the hardware of the species that made us distinct. So I'm thinking first, I'd like to just ask you about the nature of interpretation, because it seems that even though in the book you describe what you call good experiences and negative or bad experiences, and you make some, I think, healthy distinctions between them, is it not so that we can look at any phenomenon and interpret it for the good of what we call in neurolinguistic programming a, a reframe? Mm, I, I think you're getting there, Mitchell, at something very fundamental. So two steps here for me. First step, what I mean by the word good or positive is that which leads to happiness and benefit for oneself and often for others as well, uh, usually for others as well. And negative or bad is that which leads to suffering and harm. So that's how I'm using those terms, pragmatically. Yes. And then second, to your point about perspective, I think it's extremely important and relevant. Um, A friend of mine once pointed out that, generally speaking, the happiest people in the world are the poorest ones. Uh, That's not a rational, Uh obviously, for poverty or oppression, but it does speak to the point that perspective really does affect how we experience things. Uh, And one of the things that I talk about in the book is actually how to internalize a healthier, happier perspective because um, so much of my own focus at this point is about how to really turbocharge, you know, personal growth learning. That said, I don't know. I think there's some things that would be hard for me to uh, see the good in them, you know, murdering children, things like that, other more, you know, even broader, more extreme things. Um, And still, even when we're in incredibly hard circumstances, we can find um, those things in our own heart and in the outer world as well that we can take refuge in so that we can feel better and function better even when life is hard. I Yes, I, I wholly agree. I, I certainly didn't mean to imply that anything that we uh, sense or experience can be uh, sort of reinterpreted if it's horrific things, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yet, there's a whole domain of our daily experience that you really do focus on very well in the book, Rick, that could be seen, you could say, one of two ways and understand that perhaps there's a context for almost everything and there has to be uh, an almost, you're suggesting. Yeah. No, I, I wholly agree with you. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's so true about how we interpret things. Um you know, in psychology, there are two terms that are a little technical, but I, I think of them, they seem very useful to me. One is that you know them, I'm sure. Appraisal. In other words, how do we appraise situations? How, you yes. know, what, what meaning am I giving it? Or, uh, you know, what, what perspective am I holding it in? And how yes. much am I, for example, saying that it's horrible, even though maybe it's just honestly more like a mosquito bite? And then the other word <laughs> right. is attribution. Mountains yeah. and molehills. That's right, that's right. Attribution. And vice versa. What intentions, yeah, what intentions am I attributing to other people? Am I taking it personally? And that's a huge one because so often we attribute bad attentions to others when, in fact, you know, honestly, we're a bit player in their drama. We're just kind of caught in the middle of their bad day, but usually they're not doing it to us personally. Or they have good intentions deep down, 
even if they're trying to pursue them in bad ways. So, again, for me, the question is, how can we help these useful lessons in life that you teach so eloquently? You know, I, I checked you out. You know, I looked you up on on, your, on uh, oh. your website and so forth. You know, oh, so good, good. Here you are, yeah. here I am. We're trying to teach these things, and yet the world yeah. is still messed up. How can we help the lessons of life really land inside ourselves and others that we care about? Yeah. That's what I'm. That's what my book's about. Yeah. Yes, it really is. Uh, you just hit so many really wonderful, uplifting notes. After all, coming from the place of letting us know, and maybe you can talk about this, Rick. This uh, mm. this negative bias that the brain has um, historically for good reasons, survival reasons. Maybe you could elucidate that. And then from there you go on to show how neuroplasticity is really self-directed in the phrase you use, which is fabulous. I I love the name of uh, Richard Bandler's book many years ago that I read called Using Your Brain for a Change. <laughs> you know? Oh, you're right. Yes, why don't we do that? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How did that one get yeah. left out of our education, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. But anyway, if you would, please oh, sure. uh, outline what you mean by negative bias and oh, yeah. uh, go from there. Sure. Oh, sure. It's a pleasure. So kind of a two-parter here. So first part, think about the things that we, we want to grow inside ourselves or for we want to grow inside our clients or our our children, uh, patients, what have you, those we care about. Uh, so, for example, think of things like happiness. We'd like to grow more happiness or more love inside or more resilience or determination mm-hmm. or virtue. We would like to mindfulness, spiritual insight, uh, wisdom. Uh, so let's say we want to grow these inside ourselves. Uh, the question, of course, is how? And that's what I've gotten very interested in because if we mean becoming more compassionate or grateful or happy or determined or resilient or confident or to feel more loved inside or more loving, that means fundamentally that we need to learn in some way, which means that the brain has got to change. The problem is the brain is very good at changing from bad experiences, but it's bad at changing from good experiences, even though good experiences including of the good things we want to grow inside ourselves, like happiness or love or resilience, the brain is bad at turning those positive experiences into lasting neural neural structure. It's as if there's a kind of Mm. bottleneck in the brain that lets in the bad but blocks the good unless we do a little thing that usually takes about 10 or 20 seconds at a time. That's what I write about. And the reason for the negativity bias, which... There's much research on this is completely accepted in science. I think of the negativity bias as a brain like Velcro for the bad, the Teflon for the good. And that's because yeah. our ancestors evolved, you know, both primitive animals and sophisticated animals and then early humans. They really they had to pass on their genes. That's the great engine of biological, not spiritual, but biological evolution. Well, to pass on yeah. your genes, the real one in the wild is eat lunch today. Don't be lunch today. In other words, they had to really, really, really pay attention yeah. to threats to survival. And if they managed sure. to escape that charging lion, remember it forever. So, yeah, you know, there are many everyday examples of this in daily life. You know, if you imagine a relationship 
10 things happen in a day with that person you live with or work with, what have you. Let's say five mm-hmm. are positive, four are neutral, and one's negative. Which is the one that's kind of going to weigh on your mind when you're falling asleep? It's usually the negative. The negative. The negative. Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, that's kind of how the brain's designed. But that said, we can take charge of the learning process, the emotional learning, the spiritual learning, the psychological learning process. We can take charge of it from the inside out, just applying a handful of easy practical lessons from thousands of studies on the neuropsychology of learning. Mm-hmm. Beautifully put. I, and I love the metaphor of the garden of the mind that you use in the book. Oh. I, I, it's very rich, and it's pardon the expression, it's very fertile. So I <laughs> very much You're appreciate kind. it. Um, and the, the ratio that you also describe of is it is it five to one or seven to one of one negative experience needs five or seven positive ones to begin to energetically neutralize it. Yeah, let me let me speak to both of those if I could in, in reverse Please. order. I'll start with that ratio thing. Um, yeah, the, these are of course you know rough numbers, and we're really talking here about uh, you know re- recurring, continuing patterns spread out over days and months. But that said, research on first strong couples shows that they need at least a five to one ratio of positive to negative interaction. If you start falling below that five to one ratio, especially day after day, you know, month after month, your relationship's in serious trouble. In effect, one negative interaction outweighs five positive ones. And so when I first came across that finding, I was in grad school at the time some years ago. This is a finding from the research of John Gottman, the University of Washington. Mm-hmm. Very well established yes. uh, research. Sure. Yeah, it made me think about my own marriage at the time, and a little later on, it made me think about <laughs> raising children. I mean, that's a cautionary tale, isn't it, to think about that part of yep. it? And then another right. ratio is from Barbara Fredrickson and her research on positivity, positive emotion. Uh-huh. And she saw that if people are having roughly a two to one ratio of positive experiences to negative ones in general, not just in the relationship. And I should say yeah. here, when we're talking about positive experiences or negative ones, we're, we're meaning usually mild ones. On the 0 yeah. to 10 intensity scale, these are mainly ones and twos, maybe point fours. okay? So they're fairly mild, positive or negative, but it's, uh, it's mm-hmm. the stuff of daily life. Well, if people have even a two-to-one ratio, they're doing okay. You know, they're mm-hmm. all right but they're not really feeling great about life or even just good about it. It's only when that ratio starts getting north or higher than 3 to 1. In other words, mm-hmm. the territory 3 to 1, 4 to 1, 5 to 1 or higher of positive experiences to negative ones, that's when people's well-being and effectiveness in the world and sense of really having a life worth living, that's when it really starts. So again, right there, you have this very powerful point that, as it were, it's only, we need, we need to have three positives for one negative, you know, generally speaking, to feel like our life is thriving. And let's be clear, yes. our circumstances can still be tough, right? We could still be working yes. long hours or raising children who have special needs or dealing with an aging parent or grappling with poverty or, you know, a tough job, et cetera, et cetera. But as long as we can find those moments, or as you put it so powerfully in the beginning, those perspectives on our tough moments, 
that can help us have a positive experience, even in the midst of difficulty, then we can really, really, really be doing okay. So I, oh, yeah. I said, do you want me to yeah. talk about the garden metaphor, or do you want to jump in here? Yes. Um, well, I'll jump in for a moment. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, great. Uh, just Love to it. say... Just to say, I know in uh, relationships, I sometimes think the ratio is more like 10 to 1. You know, it's so funny. But I've told you I love you. I adore you. You're my, I'm crazy about you. But yes, but you didn't like the way I made dinner last night. You know, excuse me. You know. I'm I'm laughing about it. But, uh, you know, we really do empirically note this kind of thing and of course i see it all the time in my work with clients and it's just it's rather shocking that uh you would think we call ourselves rational beings but we see that the brain has the irrational component component every bit as much or actually more than the rational that's one Mm. um kind of a loggerhead we run into in in yeah. you know adult life right and yeah, um, yeah. do you want to do you want to speak to that oh I I think you're exactly right and um, you know the brain has been cobbled together uh, you know imperfectly uh, to serve a single end uh, in terms of biological evolution just passing on genes and it certainly has parts in it that are ancient. You know, the brain has been evolving, the nervous system's been evolving for 600 million years on top of roughly another 3 billion years of life altogether. And I think that inside my own mind and and brain, or inside my brain and therefore inside my mind, is a little lizard, a little mouse, and a little monkey. And that loosely (laughs) corresponds to the brain stage of evolution, then the subcortex, the amygdala, and all that stuff sits on top of it, the limbic system, and then the cortex, and then, you know, primate human cortex sitting on top of that. So for me, it boils down to, in a lot of ways, pet the lizard, feed the mouse, and hug the monkey, you know, in terms of yes. making satisfaction and connection. Yes. Oh, that's a great phrase, yeah. That's a great, very practical, evolutionarily sensitive phrase, (laughs) you know. Right. That little lizard is very scared, you know. Like I said, rule one is eat lunch, don't be lunch. And that little mouse is very hungry and looking for rewards and satisfaction. And then that little monkey is wants love and is lonely and, you know, is worried about... It's mammalian, sure. Yeah. Exactly. Sure, exactly. exactly. I'm also thinking of the phrase, Rick, uh, the phrase, uh, uh, expect the best, be prepared for the worst, is sort of uh, analogous almost to the idea of eat lunch, don't be lunch. (laughs) Definitely in some ways. That said, what are we going to do with our inner menagerie, right, the zoo between our ears? We can take, yes. we can guide it, and that's where it gets very interesting to me to help everyday good experiences that are usually quite mild, help them really sink in so that we can grow inside ourselves those things that we particularly need or long for. You know, for example, yes. speaking of a lizard, helping experiences of, of strength and relaxation or protection and safety land in terms of that lizard's needs to avoid harms. Or for the mouse, 
letting experience as a gladness and gratitude and accomplishment and success and everyday pleasure and the fullness of the moment, letting those experiences mm-hmm. land, you know, to help that little mouse meet its needs, if you will, to approach re- rewards. And then last, uh, for that little monkey inside us all, if you will, that little child inside us all, letting experiences of feeling included or seen or appreciated or liked or loved yes. or feeling compassionate yes. and kind and loving oneself, really letting those land again and again and again. If we do that 10, 20 seconds in a row, I have a little four steps for doing that in my book, if we really let that happen, you're going to build neural structure because in the famous game, yes. you know it, if, when neurons fire together, they wire together. we got to get those yeah. neurons firing, right, because of the That's negativity right. bias of the brain. we got to get That's the positive right. neurons firing to build up these positive inner strengths. Exactly. I, I so appreciate that point uh, in the sense we really can, because of that one-third, as I recall from your book, uh, that is available to us for our own neuroplastic activity, positive activity, that free from the genetic inheritance. Uh, and what was the other uh, piece of it that you... Oh, sure. You're a very close reader, Mitchell. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Um, Actually, just a a little detail. If you think about it, so when I call inner strength, I really just mean that as a broad term, the good stuff inside, you know, feeling a positive mood, optimistic, loving, you know, kind, uh, moral person, and so forth. Okay. Yes. Uh, Of those inner strengths that we all want, that's the good stuff inside, about a third of uh, that is based on innate, uh, built into our DNA uh, characteristics and our temperament or our personal qualities. But the other two-thirds, it's not one-third, it's two-thirds actually, are the, we, can, we acquire them, right? And that means we... Oh, okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good news. Oh, that's it's much really, better news. In fact, that's yeah, exactly. Good. I know, exactly. Yeah. All right. So it's roughly <laughs> about two-thirds of the uh, variation in our inner strengths are, are acquired, distinct from an A, that means, A, that it's an opportunity, and, B, it means that it's our responsibility, right? It's on us. Yes. Uh, what are we going to do yes. with the most important minute of our life, the next one, right? Minute after minute exactly. after minute. And if we make use of the most important minute of our life, the next one, we can really grow these good things inside ourselves, which will, of course, benefit all beings. Exactly, exactly. Now, what what did you say, Rick, corresponds to the mouse? The lizard uh, is obvious. In my metaphor, I'm referring to the mammalian, as you said, in the mammalian stage of brain evolution, which involves structures loosely defined. Uh, yes. The uh, hippocampus, the amygdala, the thalamus, okay. uh, the basal ganglia. Well, reptiles have a basal ganglia, too. But anyway, what I mean by that is that uh, our early mammals were able to hunt at night, which is very important because they were warm-blooded. Also, they yes. started developing yes. very powerful emotions that enabled them to uh, discriminate better um, among various rewards yeah, sure. and pursue their aims. So that's what I... Build I, community. Build community yeah, for exactly cooperation right. to, yeah. to uh, for, forage together as a group in the forest. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then, of course, came those primates um, starting around 40 or some million years ago who were 
incredibly social. Primates are super social. Yes. And then we humans, yes. you know, it's amazing to appreciate that the, our, how can I put it, we have ancestors about two and a half million years ago that started manufacturing stone tools. Yeah, that's pretty mm-hmm. amazing. I can't, now, I cannot make a stone axe, right? But they could do that <laughs> with brains yes. about a third our size, which is amazing. So the brain has tripled in its volume over the last several million years. And much of that build-out is related to love, broadly defined. Be language, Uh empathy, bonding, altruism, cooperation, uh, compassion, uh, negotiation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and the scientists believe this is the the social brain theory of evolution. Certainly over the last Uh several million years, our primate and then hominid, and early human ancestors, the primary driver of the evolution of their brain were the survival benefits of love, broadly defined, you know, social skills, being able to work better as a team, keep children alive, be that village it takes to raise a child. Isn't that quite extraordinary? Yes. That, that it is. use it metaphorically, the heart, and metaphorically speaking, has been driving yes. the evolution of the brain over the last several million years. Yes. That is wow. fascinating, and i got to tell you, Rick, I actually uh, kind of intuitively came to love as the survival driver uh, yeah. simply by contemplating its role in the universe from going from a, a very poetic notion that love is the glue of the universe to, well, mm-hmm. Why? What could it be about the nature of love, which, of course, has subsets such as sympathy and empathy and the like, friendship, what, you know, what have you. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I really kind of figured it out, and I am really pleased. I guess you're feeding my good neural structures right now. Um, uh-huh. That's right. With and what you're saying. Funny, Mitchell. Yeah. yeah, if I could just say it right here. Here's the, uh, here's the moment, right? And most yes. moments we waste them. We have a momentary positive mental state. Like here, you yes. are I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. We're talking here. Maybe other people listening are feeling good. Okay. We're having positive yes. mental states. The question is, are we helping our brain turn this positive mental state into a lasting neural trait? And the problem is, and this has been deeply humbling for me as a longtime therapist as well as, frankly, yes. as a dad and a meditation yes. teacher. It's humbling uh, be, for me to appreciate how many of the positive mental states that you and I and other therapists and other teachers are able to uh, foster or nourish, catalyze in the minds of other people, which then just pass through the brain like water through a sieve with no lasting value because of the negativity bias. But meanwhile, mm-hmm. whenever people have negative experiences, whoop, it gets transferred into neural structure, right? Once burned, mm-hmm. twice shy. And so for me, it's so powerful to appreciate that when you're having a useful positive moment, especially if it's one of those key resource experiences I write about in the book that are the medicine for what you specifically need, When you're having those little positive experiences, don't waste them. Take the extra 10 or 20 seconds using methods in my book to really 
help them begin encoding into neural structure so you can then increasingly take them with you wherever you go. Brilliant. Brilliant. State into trait. I love it. State into trait. And using the music of language, the the rhythm and the um, sound to help to etch that into the into the cortex. Yeah, if you were to summarize my, you know, the whole essence of hardwiring happiness, it boils down to four words: have it, enjoy it, and especially enjoy it because learning. And again, when we talk about becoming happier or more loving or feeling more confident or secure, we're talking about learning. Okay, learning is a two-stage process. Whether you're learning the multiplication tables, right, or you're learning uh, to be a kinder person or you're learning deep down inside yourself that you're a good person and you can really trust that about yourself. That's learning. Two-stage process. Stage one, you have to activate a mental state. You have to have an experience in the first place. And then the second stage, the critically important stage, is to install that activated mental state, as you put it, into an enduring neural trait. Otherwise, the mental state is just a passing moment. It's nice in the moment, sure, but it has no sure. lasting value. Most people, uh, for themselves, and also most people in the helping professions, like you and I and many others, we're good mm-hmm. at activating positive states. But I have to say, I think most of us are pretty poor at installing them into lasting, useful neural traits, right? And that's, for me, what yeah. the opportunity is. I think you're right. Yeah, is to I not waste right. it, but rather yeah. install it through enriching the experience, helping it last, helping it become more intense, drawing on some other factors that neuropsychology has identified, and then also priming your memory systems to absorb it, to really sense that it's going into you. And then if you want to link it to this positive material, like feeling loved or seen by someone today, if you want, for example, potentially link that to the negative material of when you were young, not feeling so loved or so seen, in order to gradually soothe and ease and even eventually replace that negative material. That's the opportunity. I want to get to that in a moment. Complex, but yeah, it's 10, 20, 30 seconds no, no. at a time. But a few it times doesn't. a day no, it's makes all the difference in the world for people. Exactly. We are speaking with Dr. Rick Hansen, Ph.D., neuropsychologist, who is the author of several books, latest of which is Hardwiring Happiness, The New Brain Science of Contentment, calm and confidence and it should be obvious to all of you who listen to a better world regularly why we want rick on the show today to instruct us in new ways of learning and new ways to make permanent to habituate uh happiness joy well-being because that is very much within our domain and this interview is helping to seal that in to our dendrites and our synapses. So I so That's appreciate great. having you on the show today, Rick. Yeah, thank you. Oh, In fact, that, I'm so glad. That uh, kind of circles back to, uh, I have, probably have way too many questions for this one interview for you, but uh, mm-hmm. one question is, 
the negative experiences that we've had, let's just even say because a habit becomes an addiction, and I know one of the things that you deal with a lot at your Wellspring Institute, if I understand, is dealing with addictions, and we all do as therapists, as people, and sometimes those addictions are negative thoughts, sometimes they're uh, negative emotions like anger, and sometimes they go so far as being uh, substances such as, you know, drugs, heroin, alcohol, what have you. So, when you embark upon hardwiring happiness, is it that you are, uh, one, of course you're doing the proactive activity of uh, building a new um, neuro network, but what is going on? Are you also at the same time discharging the negative charge around the, uh, or the already existing bad habits? How, how does that work? Mm-hmm. And is there an electrical yeah. charge? I've always thought about it sometimes because I, I deal a lot with uh, vibrational frequency energy medicine, that there's, also, there's actually a, a negative charge around certain of our negative habits. And we have to dis, discharge as though we discharge a battery almost. That's such an interesting topic you bring up. And um, first, let me say that, again, just to apologize, my voice is really funny right now because I'm, uh, I'm at the end of a sore throat and I've been teaching a lot. So anyway. Uh, yes, yes. No, no, first, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, with regard to the negative, uh, this could be a chance for me just to explain my garden metaphor. And then I'll, and then I'll next talk about, yeah, dealing with um, bad habits and addictive tendencies and so forth. So first, with regard to the garden, uh, I think there are three ways to engage the mind, basically, three ways to practice. In the first way, we just be with our experience. We don't try to change it. You know, we see it, we feel the feelings, we experience the experience, we hold it, hopefully, in a big space of awareness. We, we try to accept it, maybe hopefully with even some friendliness toward it. Maybe we investigate mm-hmm. it, we feel down to the younger, more vulnerable layers, but we're not trying to change it, okay? In the second way to engage the mind, we're trying to reduce the negative. For example, we're trying to let go of addictive desires or let go of those negative appraisals and attributions we talked about earlier, those perspectives, as you put it, that make us suffer more and harm others. So yes. We sort of let go of those. We let go of sadness. We let go of hurt. We let go of tension in our body, et cetera, et cetera. That's the second way to engage the mind. The third way, is to grow the positive, to grow those inner strengths, happiness, confidence, yes. virtue, etc. cetera, um, that we've talked about. All three are important. Um, I actually think mm-hmm. the first one is most important and most primary because, for one, it's your last resort. Because sometimes you just can't reduce the negative or grow the positive. You just have to bear your own pain. You just have to ride mm-hmm. out the storm. So mm-hmm. as a metaphor, if the mind is, and brain are like a garden, First, we can just witness the garden. Second, we can pull weeds. Third, we can plant flowers. Or in six words, yeah. we can let be or let go or let in. Let so when I focus on right. letting in, growing those flowers, it's with, re- with great respect for, of course, the other two ways to engage the garden. And often there's a kind of sequence. So let's suppose someone has, you know, a problematic habit of one kind or another, uh, or they just have a, an inclination toward anger or sorrow or 
drinking too much, what have you. You know, and the first way to engage it, they could just witness it. They could explore it. What's this about? Where did this come from? What's the truth of it? What are the what are the payoffs? And also, what are the costs of doing this thing? Just right. seeing it. What does it mean second, to me? And then second, they could try to release it and let go of it and, and abandon, if you will, uproot the desire or what have you. And then third, mm-hmm. they could grow a positive alternative. I think this is so important yeah. because a lot of people focus on reducing the negative, pulling weeds, but they don't replace the weeds with flowers. And as any gardener knows, if you don't put flowers where you've pulled weeds, weeds will come back, right? That's so, right. I think exactly. Yeah, and so that's where one of the things that I, I talk about you know, in the book is about motivation. Because you may know this uh, silly but profound joke, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one but the light bulb has to want to change, right? And so the question is, <laughs> how do we want to change, you know? And it's to really take in the good of the rewarding aspects of choosing the high road over the low road. Or as the Buddha uh-huh. put it a long time ago, happiness is choosing a greater happiness. Pardon me, wisdom, rather. Wisdom, as the Buddha put it. Wisdom is choosing a greater happiness over a lesser happiness. So when you choose uh-huh. greater happiness or you imagine choosing it, or you take the higher road and you're reflecting uh, upon it afterward, really let it sink in. Take those 10, 20, 30 seconds to really let the reward of not drinking or stopping at one glass of wine or one cookie, right, or the reward of not yelling at the kids or the reward of um, not... uh, uh, you know, resenting and resenting and resenting other people. Uh, you know, the rewards of that, if you let those rewards really sink in, while also being aware of the higher road that you took, your brain will associate, since neurons that fire together, wired together, your brains will associate that reward that you're taking in to the higher road that you chose, that more wholesome choice you made. And that will gradually incline your brain in that direction, because it'll just naturally associate rewards to the higher road, so it'll want to go there on its own. And then, of course, it'll be rewarding, so you have this nice positive cycle. It's beautiful. It it just so underlines this notion that we, you know, there's this sort of metaphysical notion that has been flying around for a long time, that we create our lives. And this gives, you could say, neural substance to that comment. <laughs> it's not just some kind of um, cosmic con- comment, but it really has an undergirding that shows that we are with two-thirds of ourselves. And I'll go so far as to suggest that it's more like three-thirds be based on uh-huh. or close to it, based on the whole yeah. notion, Rick, of epigenetics, that we are always influencing through our choices and our uh, interpretation of our experiences the DNA itself which is not itself rigidified it is malleable just as the brain is what do you have to say about that oh it's cool well two things first just that just to be clear uh, and to be appropriately modest here uh, our uh, small nonprofit institute, the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, doesn't particularly focus on addiction. So 
I wouldn't want people emailing me or calling me saying, you know, uh, hey, what could you do for the addiction? Because we're not specialists there. I don't want to claim any oh, okay. particular wisdom. Thanks I for the clarification. Say, but, yeah, but using your word broadly, for sure, we're very interested as an institute in um, positive learning, uh, and including motivation for taking the sure. high road instead of the low road, if you will. Yeah. And then yes. second, with regard to epigenetics, uh, gene expression, as you know, uh, mm-hmm. you're right. There's a, a great deal of research. Uh, Bruce Lipton and others have certainly talked about it. Uh, that shows that how we use our mind can affect the expressions of our genes. The DNA itself doesn't change, as you know, but the genes, the little strips of atoms inside the twisted up molecule okay. of DNA, which, if unraveled, could be six feet long. The, the expression of those genes is really critical. They have to be kind of unpacked, as it were, or inhibited yes. uh, so that they can either do their work or be turned off because they're not needed anymore. You know, and as you know, and Bruce Lipton writes about and others, um, that process yes. of gene expression is incredibly important. Uh, and just as one example, uh, studies show that uh, people who routinely practice uh, relaxation uh, in one, whether formally, like through yoga, or informally, just in daily life, have improved mm-hmm. expression of genes that control the stress response. They become more resilient as a result. Yes. Uh, literally down at the level of little strips of atoms inside a twisted-up molecule inside the nucleus of neurons that are so small. You oh, could put my cell bodies of neurons side by side, five neurons side by side, the cell bodies, the fat part of the neuron, you can put five of them side by side inside the width of a human hair. And tiny, tiny, tinier yet inside that cell body, which is a fifth of a human hair, you know, you have the nucleus, and then inside that you've got DNA, and then inside that you have little strips of genes. And yet our relaxation practices and or and probably other wholesome practices meditation can somehow mm-hmm. reach yeah reach down into those tiny genes and open them up so they can do their good work inside us isn't that remarkable oh, god it truly is it is so beautiful you know I, there's a certain um hint or two or three in all of this rick of buddhist psychology and i don't know if it's something that you yourself have uh, studied or or do practice, but my overall sense of your writing and uh, the Wellspring Foundation has that sensibility mm-hmm. of bringing that kind of wisdom to the mm-hmm. foreground. And, uh, you know, I think also of the work, as you're speaking of, Dr. Herbert Benson from Harvard mm-hmm. back in, uh, you know, the early, 80, late 70s, actually, right. and early 80s. With the relaxation response, I I wanted to go with him to Tibet like nobody's business to be with the Dalai Lama's physician and um, on his treks there. You know, I was a kid, but I I had the I was bitten by that bug, if you will. You know, so is there um, is that one of the influences in your thinking? Oh yeah. Well, let's see. First, uh, yes, exactly. I was actually thinking of. Dr. Benson's research when I was talking there about improved uh, gene expression based on relaxation yes. practices. That's his work, exactly, sure. as you know. Uh, yeah, yes. on the, the Buddhist side, um, 
let's see, at a personal level, uh, I am very, uh, I've gotten profound value from uh, Buddhist wisdom and, and practices, and yeah. I, I teach in that framework myself. In this particular book, you're exactly right. I, even though the book is written for a general audience, it's very practical, it's very down to earth, and all the rest of that good stuff. Sure. I'm actually very interested in uh, what it actually means to uh, first have the second noble truth of the craving that creates suffering and harm. What's that actually mm-hmm. mean neuropsychologically? And then in the third sure. noble truth, the end of craving, and therefore the end of the cause of suffering and harm, and, and what remains then, as, as the Buddha put it, that highest happiness, which is peace. Uh, yes. What does it actually mean neuropsychologically to have no basis sure. for craving, right? And so that's in a, in a deep way. I think you're very discerning. In a deep way, that's my my inquiry here. And yes. um, if I could speak to it briefly, please. What, what drives what drives yeah what craving is broadly defined. You know, resisting what's unpleasant, right? Going to war with mm-hmm. it, getting angry about it, or afraid of it, uh, or freezing yes. in the face of it. That's a kind of resisting in terms of our core need for safety or to avoid harms, or grasping what's pleasant, you know, mine, uh, going after it, addictions, as you brought up, uh, with yes. feelings of disappointment or frustration or drivenness or pressure. That has yes. to do with a kind of craving related to our second core need, you know, the mouse need, if you will, for satisfaction to, to approach rewards. And then third, uh, think about clinging to others, you know. Don't go, don't go. Feelings of abandonment or loneliness yes. or inadequacy or shame or, or feeling hurt or voted off the island or unloved or unlovable. Mm-hmm. All that is a kind of clinging. That's another aspect of craving. So broadly defined. That's Which you I'm also saying. mentioned in your book has long-lasting survival value. <laughs> yeah, that's very poignant, isn't it? To appreciate that we yes. have a brain. I noticed that. In many ways. Right. Yeah, to create I it thought about survive. my Jewish mother. <laughs> there you are, but it creates yeah. lots of suffering. So, so the question yeah. then becomes you know, how to undo the causes, the underlying causes of craving, which are states of deficit or disturbance. In other words, when we yeah. feel like there's not enough safety or not enough. Uh, rewards in our life or not enough love in our life and we feel disturbed rather than being able to tolerate the way the world is including as you brought up in the very beginning through having useful perspectives when we feel yes. there's a deficit or a disturbance that's the underlying cause of the craving that is the cause mm-hmm. probably to find of suffering and harm which means that there's where it gets super exciting which means that if people repeatedly in authentic ways, half a dozen or a dozen times a day, register the experience of their core needs being met, that actually in this moment they're all right in terms of their needs for safety and they can feel peaceful. In this moment there actually is enough uh, in terms of their needs for satisfaction, for rewards, and they can feel contented. And if they can Mm -hmm. just register in this moment, there's enough connection there's enough sense of people who see you, even if it's not perfect, that you, you're, there's enough sense of being liked or loved. And so they can, and also there's a lovingness in themselves 
in terms of their needs for connection to attach to others, if in this moment you can just have an ordinary experience of need, basic needs met, in this moment there's no basis of deficit or disturbance for the craving that leads to suffering and harm. In this moment, you're actually embodying the third noble truth of the end of craving. You're not enlightened, but you're starting to lay down the neural tracks. You're strengthening the neural circuits that support the felt sense of no basis for craving and therefore suffering and harm. And that's what I call the responsive mode of the brain, the green zone. Yeah. And so if we come home to green, you know, it's our resting state. It's our true home. It's our home base in the brain. If we come home to green multiple times a day, 10, 20 seconds at a time, registering a fundamental sense of peace, contentment, and love, increasingly we're going through life on green, even when life is tough. And ultimately, thinking about the title of your show, A Better World, so much of the pain and suffering in the world is based on the brain's other setting, its reactive mode that I write about in the book, the red zone of, you know, in three umbrella terms, fear, frustration, and heartache, and a lot of individual suffering and an awful lot of interpersonal conflict scaled from the level of, you know, family life all the way up to nations. We've seen a lot of interpersonal conflict in the last uh, 10 years in America uh, that's very driven by an underlying sense of fear or frustration or heartache, a real strong sense of us versus them and a willingness yeah. to use, you know, radical methods to, uh, you know, to somehow enforce the, you know, the will of a minority of people on the great majority of people. So, exactly. you know, if on the other hand, people repeatedly register this sense of peace, contentment, and love, they feel stronger inside, and they really can create a better world. Yes, indeed. Oh, that's so beautifully put. I love that. That was that was mm-hmm. elegant and eloquent both at the same mm-hmm. time, and um, and with such a core of truth, it it just resonates. I think for everyone to hear this, and it yeah, just you. so well sure, and it positions us, Rick, in the driver's seat, which is so important. I mean, there's a whole other level, but the first thing. Uh, before going there, I'm thinking of that beautiful film, um, A Beautiful Life. Do you remember? Mm. Oh, sure. A it's, Beautiful uh, Life. Jimmy Douglas. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jimmy Stewart. James the Stewart. gentleman, uh, Italian, who they're, they're, they're brought to the uh, concentration camps, the father and the young boy. His son. Oh, this one. Now I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. That one, right? Yeah. I, I think mm-hmm. it's A Beautiful Life. And his son, of course, has no idea what they're walking into, and the father is completely committed to keeping it that way, of framing, you know, this goes back to some of what I was saying at the beginning about perspective and perception, uh, framed it so that they were going for having fun, and they were going to be playing certain games, and, you know, the father succeeded in maintaining that frame, even in the direst of circumstances you know and it also since I brought that up it reminds me of the stories that I heard about um, Jews in the camps doing theater and um, and comedy routines at night you know when they were finished you know doing the slave work during the day you know and before they were being gassed they were celebrating God 
their understanding of God and the divine, and uh, we're amusing each other. And so right. I have been a great believer that uh, that God is really a comedian, and I will stand by that, and um, mm. that uh, humor is one of the most powerful means we have on this planet for shifting our consciousness and shifting really our our brain activity and the entire notion of state to trait i feel that yeah. it is um really a, an amazing vehicle do you can you comment on that oh i well yes and i find i, I myself i mean when i was uh, i lived in germany or i traveled in germany too when i was younger and yeah. visited a concentration camp and I'm, i was deeply mm-hmm. moved by it and and that's a particular thing that I'm not Jewish myself in my background. Uh, I was raised a casual mm-hmm. Christian, and then I've become a, a <laughs> casual sort of, Christian, uh, yes. Uh-huh. You know, along the way. That said, right. yeah, right. I think it's important to just make distinctions that I know you're aware of. I'm just going to myself try to be explicit about it. Oh, them. that's okay. Please. Uh, yeah. Uh, on the one hand, it's really true that our perspective on life including when life is good and when life is terrible, you know, when those we love have, uh, you know, terrible disease, let's say, or or, uh, when terrible things are happening in the world, or we ourselves are, let's say, stuck in what I think of as hell on earth, you know, like Auschwitz or something like that. Sure. Yes, it is true that our perspective on those terrible things can really help us feel better and cope with them better. On the other hand, there's nothing about that, and I know you know this, that um, uh, in any way defends, of course, those terrible things or tries to minimize or diminish the horror, the actual horror of them and the responsibility on all of us, you know, to never forget, never let that happen Mm -hmm. again. The other thing to to say, because I think sometimes, uh, and I bet this has come your way, uh, it's come my way from time to time, there's a kind of knock on uh, positive psychology or even spiritual practice sometimes that Mm -hmm. is about... Uh, looking, it's about merely looking on the bright side, or you know, being a lotus eater, or ignoring the horrors of the world. And I yes. think, and I know you would agree, it's a farthest yes. thing from the truth. That in fact, right. number one, we have a brain that's biased already to look at the horrors, yeah. the hard things of the world, and looking on the bright side is only a kind of a corrective to see the the whole mosaic, every single tile, yes. the good and the bad, and the neutral. And mosaic mm-hmm. of life. And second, by internalizing, as I write about a lot, you know, hardwiring happiness inside ourselves, including building up the the mm-hmm. will, let's say, to take the higher road instead of the lower one, or building up inside ourselves um, more equanimity, more calm, more steadiness of mind that can deal with things. We become more able to deal with problems, large and small. We yeah. become more able to deal with um, dictators and tyrants, you know, at the largest scale, and more able yes. to deal with people in our own companies or families or neighborhoods that are creating yes. harms, you know, for themselves and other people. So it's not either or. I think a lot of people, not you, of course, but a lot of people think that if you're growing the good inside yourself, that must be mean that you're overlooking or minimizing the bad. Not at all. Yes. You know, growing the good inside no. yourself helps you see the bad more clearly and deal with it more effectively. Absolutely, absolutely. As was 
has been said in Buddhist tradition, uh, one of my teachers was uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche in many ways. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, he speaks about uh, the bittersweet of life, that you, it's not all sweet, nor is it all bitter. And uh, you can right. say the, the well-balanced being really does oh. cognize both. And yes, seeks to transmute in some way, even by bearing witness to what we would call the negative, and allow it to seep through. And what you're laying out here uh, is the hardwiring apparatus in the nervous system that could allow, in other words, you're giving the, the physical basis which is why I so appreciate neuroscience in general and your work in particular, Rick, to act as the filtering system and even, you could say, the, um, the mechanism by which to transmute negative into positive. You know, something I learned from one of my teachers, Richard Bandler, years ago is that uh, the yeah. nervous system, it experiences a certain titillation, and then it's our interpretation that says that's either fear, anxiety, or excitement. You know, it's that part of it is up to us. The nervous system is experiencing its signals from the external world, you know, but we're the ones in control of how we decide to experience that moment. And uh, a lot of your work is really, in a sense, um, laying the uh, the neurophysiological platform for that yeah that's exactly right and uh you know they have a saying in tibet uh i know we'll be finishing here in a moment they have a saying in tibet if you take care of the minutes the years will take care of themselves and i found that oh. hopeful. there's a yeah like i said in passing earlier what's the mo- what's the most important minute of your life it's always the next one, yeah. right? Minute after minute That's after right. minute. That's the only one That's right. with any real influence over. So, you know, I also think exactly. about, uh, you know, probably wrapping up here too, this, speaking of the Buddha, this quote from him, um, he says, think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. Mm, that is beautiful. What a beautiful note to end on. But I so thank you. What oh, a my pleasure. pleasure, Mitchell. And I wish everyone listening the very best. And it's an honor to be with you here. Well, thank you. Same here. And uh, honestly, I feel like we're going to have to have you back again to uh, do a full show and uh, continue with this dialogue if you're willing to, Rick. Oh, it'll be a pleasure. Just let me know anytime. I'll be back. Will do, will do. Feel better, and uh, funny to say, but I'm sure your throat is already on the mend. And thanks so much for joining us today on The Better World. Thank you again. Take care now. Take care. Sure. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye now. Dr. Rick Hansen, Ph.D., author of Hardwiring Happiness, the New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. And for those of you, of course, who listen to A Better World regularly or want to at this point, uh, you know that we do talk about these kinds of subjects because we are so committed 
to creating a better world. And if you cannot have the uh, actual physicalized reality of that in your body, and as Rick Hansen has outlined here, how to install it, if you will, in your brain, it ain't going to last. Now, one of the questions I didn't have a chance yet to ask him is what happens in the brain and what is the distinction between when we have a state, even a happy, joyous state, what is the neurological activity of that distinct from when we, we contemplate it, we sit with it as he was suggesting that specific exercise of, you could almost say, consciously recording it or memorizing that good state for 10, 12, 15, 20 seconds to be wholly conscious of that state. And for those of you who just heard that interview would gather that that was really the essence of the practice that Rick Hansen is suggesting we all engage in as a means of shifting our way of being, of shifting our consciousness, of dehabituating from the negative, which is the brain's automatic default bias tendency. <laughs> Wouldn't you know it? We're climbing out of a bucket of mud just to start with but you know so does a flower but look what flowers do and he does use the beautiful imagery and metaphor of a garden for the mind and here it is again um you know the seed has to struggle through the dirt and the mud to reach the surface to break out into the sunlight you know it's really a beautiful image and it's actually accurate in describing with some precision our relationship to life itself. So the role of um, the negative in our lives is not because we're bad people, and that's a really important thing to really understand, but when we feel negatively bent or sad or lonely or uh, empty or not good enough, or unlovable, which are, of course, comments I hear from my clients all the time. Uh, it's useful to recognize that we live in that ethos, not just externally, look at the world, but internally, there's this is a biological mechanism that, yes, we interpret as loneliness, we read we interpret as unlovable, those things aren't actual. They're just a feeling that we've given some meaning to, and then we attach our egos to it, and oh my God, hell has broken loose. But it doesn't have to be that way when we trace back the origins of these feelings and their interpretations and the experiences themselves back to the well, or to use uh, Rick Hansen notion, I guess I could say, wellspring of uh, where everything arises. And from that space, that void, if you will, according to the Buddhist notion, 
psychologically and historically this negative bent because of the very nature of not being lunch, of needing to survive, and being utterly aware and mindful of the surroundings so that we do not become someone's lunch, but actually have lunch for yet another day. It's fun. He he puts things very well, and I very much, very much appreciate it. It wholly resonates with uh, my understanding, although I have some more questions, and uh, we will invite Rick Anson back onto the show to uh, go another step in this understanding. And I want to say as well, since I put this into my uh, introduction, that this kind of understanding leads to the notion of self-mastery. And mastery has everything to do with mastering our emotions. Because if you look at the world and the mess we're in globally, as well as, needless to say, nationally, is an emotional affair. It's not that we don't have enough food on the planet. It's not that we don't even have enough water or air. We do. They're plentiful, in fact. But it's our emotional life that keeps tripping us up. This, this uh, deep urge of many toward acquisition, toward ownership, toward control, based on this seeming ever-greedy sensibility, which, since we're referring so much to the Buddhist understanding, science, and psychology, we could call it uh, what is called there the hungry ghost syndrome. And when we conquer that, when we can only conquer it by first seeing it in action, but by seeing it in action, we can go, ah, oh, what is that about me? What is that about my program, which is a result of any number of different influences upon me in my life, in our lives? It's not me in some kind of essential way. It's ways I've learned that have resonated with my own inner fears and biological call for survival. So in some sense, it's not real, except that it's become made. It's been made real. And then we identify with it. And before you know it, we're in trouble. Because <laughs> then it becomes an entire nexus or complex of different dendritic synaptic activity heading in a direction that's ultimately ultimately not self-serving because if others are harmed ultimately not penultimately I too am harmed because on the highest level of reality we are truly one so to harm another is literally to harm ourselves. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Who wants to live in a world where, let's say, uh, you know, Mr. Smith has all the wealth and no one else does? He has no one to talk with. 
he has no one to to have um a a marriage with or a lovership with or or debate with I'm very lonely it's a completely unworkable scenario and even if there were 10 people with Mr. Smith that's still not sufficient because if they all intermarry before you know it they'll be like greyhounds they'll all be uh, they'll all have too pure a breed and will have all of the problems of inbreeding so no matter how you look at it it's not sustainable it's not fun which i say is a true survival sustainability mechanism in itself amusement entertainment enjoyment as rick was sharing with us from his point of view as well and the whole thing is completely lopsided but biology always seeks diversity because diversity allows for greatest adaptation and when we are adaptable i.e. flexible and resilient with our environment inner and outer what I refer to as inner ecology and outer ecology then we stand a chance for long-term happiness and obviously survival our probabilities have increased. Does this all make sense? I hope it does. So when you go the next step, you see that if we could have dialogues such as this in our family life, needless to say, in our coupled life, and then on a community level, and then on a town and county level, a state level, a national congressional level, then an international level, we then see there's a very different scenario to be enjoyed. So, um, when we can understand these neurophysiological mechanisms of why we're negatively bent, biased and how we can bridge that gap with some level of elegance and refinement because we're all in the soup together and help each other instead of being foes or enemies and doing being you know bent on harming each other but to reach down deeper into our true biological nature which is to cooperate and, yes, to love, to enjoy, to laugh, to do sport. Yep, all of this is part of it. To maximize the use of our body. Our body is designed for movement. And when we move together, we harmonize together. We create bonds and packs and groups that can celebrate together. It's all biological, just fascinating. And our mind and the capacity to reflect is based on that. So, I very much appreciate all of you tuning in yet again. 
to our radio show here on Blog Talk Radio every Wednesday uh, at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, or Daylight Time for that matter. Uh, Our website is www.abetterworld.tv. There we have a newsletter. We've had a few technical glitches, so some people haven't been able to open it up, but please be patient. The development of virtues, such as patience, is something that can be hardwired in just as can be happiness. So you may have to bear with us for that a wee bit longer. Also, I'd like to turn your attention to our Facebook page, A Better World Media, and of course, Mitchell J. Rabin there as well, and become a friend, and as they say, like us, and follow us on Twitter, and all of the above social media fun. And uh, also, send me an email with your comments and uh, suggestions, feedback, always appreciated, at mjr at abetterworld.net mjr at abetterworld.net it's always a pleasure to hear from you and we seek to incorporate comments we receive uh, into our shows as appropriate so again thanks so much this is all in service to you and uh, thanks for helping to create a better world and being part of our community bye bye now and I look forward to speaking with you all next